Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing the collapsed neonate. As ever, all guidelines are correct for the Nottingham University Hospitals NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All information is correct at the time of recording and all views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello once again, welcome back to Take Orally. Uh, Jamie Thomas here, Teacher Fellow in Emergency Medicine at, at, uh, at McDreamy on Twitter. And um, my favourite paediatrician, Colin Gilhooley, is once again with me. Hello, Colin. Hi, Jamie. How are you doing? I'm very well, sir. You're looking marvellous today. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you, Jamie. Um, in this episode, we're going to be discussing the collapsed neonate, Colin. Absolutely, yeah. So I think this is something that probably scares a lot of people. It sounds dramatic. It does. It does. And so it's one of those things that when something's scary, you have to have thought about it. You have to be prepared for it and you have to have an idea of what the potential problems are going to be. So neonates, obviously very little, Mm -hmm. um, unlikely to get much history, um, and could be anything, is what people always think. I've got no idea what I'm going to be dealing with. So today, hopefully, we'll go through, have a look at the potential problems, group them into and stratify them into specific areas, and then give you an approach that you'll be able to go through and have in your head that will be useful any time one of these children presents. Okay. So, still a presenting complaint, if you see those words, still something that gets your blood pumping, that gets your brain Absolutely. going, even at your near consultancy level yeah. of experience. So I think um, what we know is that neonates are very little, and they have very little reserve, so that's cardiovascular reserve and respiratory reserves. So when they do get unwell, they often get very unwell, and it can happen quite quickly. Uh, and so... When something happens quickly, it's often better to try and fix it reasonably quickly if you can. So I think that's the the area where you know that if you can get on top of this as early as possible, you're likely to stand the best possible chance. So we know from, say, adults with sepsis, you know, uh, urgent care, that first hour, the hour of power um, increases increases mortality. Decreases decreases mortality, increases survival, funnily enough. Um, And so the similar is true in neonates is that actually you want to make sure you treat them effectively as as quickly as possible. Mm. And so from that point of view, the first thing is probably having an idea of what can happen, why Mm. neonates collapse. And so from that point of view, I always like to split them up into infection, so sepsis, cardiology, neurology, including non-accidental injury, and then metabolic conditions. So there's kind of four areas there. So sepsis, cardiology, neurology, and then metabolic. Um, And so I guess you look at them and the way I've mentioned them is probably the order in which they're the most common, okay? So sepsis is definitely, without doubt, the most common reason for neonatal collapse. And so it's important to always, always, always treat a neonate for sepsis when they come in collapse. Um, I guess what we haven't said is what what, what does collapse mean, Jamie, I guess. Mm, That's true. And so from that point of view, just from that point of view, I think you've got uh, a neonate, i.e. an infant less than 28 days of age, who's come in either unresponsive or incredibly lethargic, only responding to pain, Uh, usually very tachycardic, tachypnic, uh, pale, floppy, um, and may have a temperature, but might not, might be cold. and all of those things need to be considered. So when an infant comes in who's either unresponsive or incredibly lethargic, then they're the children that we would think, oh, this is neonatal collapse or close to, let's, let's go in. So we're not necessarily talking that they're in cardiac arrest. We're talking mm. 
maybe they're close to, maybe they're peri-arrest. And so, as I say, uh, going back to thinking about your conditions, sepsis is the most common. Um, every trust, I imagine, has a protocol for how they treat sepsis in the neonatal period. We certainly do in Nottingham. Uh, and ours is to treat them with triple antibiotics. So we give them uh, a cephalosporin. Uh, in neonates, it's cephotaxime. Um, and the reasons for that are, are twofold. Uh, the first of which is the other kefs like kefiroxime and keftraxone can have some liver problems and also um, kefotaxime does nothing to your ionised calcium whereas keftriaxone uh, can lower your ionised calcium and as we all know calcium is an inotrope and if you've got someone who's already unwell, cardiovascularly unstable and you lower their calcium, you lower their inotropy and you might make them worse. So it's kefotaxime uh, and then we give gentamicin and amoxicillin as well. So that should pretty much cover... a broad net. We will cover everything uh, with that, so it's very unlikely that we won't miss something if it's sepsis. From that point of view, group B strep, though, is probably uh, mm. the one that you want to be aware of. Mm. Uh, so about half of women are colonised. Mm, so uh, so in, this trust, in this trust, we don't, we don't screen. Okay. Um, in America, they definitely do screen. Uh, there's a reason for not screening, Jamie. That's um, that a negative doesn't mean a negative when you come to labour. So you can be falsely reassured that a mum has had a negative GBS swab when in fact she's now colonised with it. And certainly there are stories of, of that happening the other way around. So having swabs that are positive and then later, later pregnancies having swabs that aren't. So in this trust we don't screen for GBS. So there's just an assumption that everyone has it from that point okay. of view and make sure you treat for it. And obviously the antibiotic uh, choice um, will cover you for that. Mm. Um, but if you did just want to cheat GBS because you knew it was that, you could just use a benzyl penicillin IV, which would work effectively. But for a collapsed neonate, you don't know what they've got. And whilst you may consider GBS, there are other organisms that it could be. So you give them a broad spectrum cover. Um, and I guess from the point of view of the collapsed neonate, following on from that, um, you have to look at their cardiovascular status and see whether they need resuscitation mm. and consider fluids from that point of view. Um, the caution is that at this moment, whilst you're treating for sepsis, you don't know what it is, so you have yeah. undifferentiated illnesses. Mm. So you have to keep all of the potential differentials in the back of your mind. Mm. Um, so when you're using fluid, it's worth using, it's no problem using it, but use it cautiously and watch for the response. So does the heart rate come down? Does the blood pressure improve? Does the patient clinically improve? Or have you made things worse? In which case it might tell because you. Because there's a cardiology issue and exactly. actually your fluid overload. Exactly. Yeah. So I suppose, you, you, you know, as you said, they may be pyrexial, they may be cold, they yep. may be normotensive, there may be a rash, there may not be a rash. Yes. Very, so it's, it's very, very difficult. Absolutely. It's very difficult. And so that's why I think the first thing to say is you always treat for sepsis in these children. Mm. Always. Um, whilst performing your clinical assessment and looking for things that point towards sepsis or that point towards other areas. Mm. Um, and so you can, you can ask in the history, um, and it's likely to be a short history, you need to ask about pregnancy, mm. uh, risk factors for sepsis, you need to be aware of any other complications during pregnancy. Mm. Um, so um, was there problems with reduced movements during pregnancy? Was it a difficult labour? Was it a long labour? Did the child need significant resuscitation mm. after they were born? Uh, which might point to a period of hypoxia uh, and potential possible brain injury at that point. Um, but it is all very difficult. Um, you need to ask about other things that might point you towards a metabolic condition. So mm. um, is there a history of consanguinity between the parents? 
Mm. Is there anyone else in the immediate or wider family who has metabolic conditions? Mm. Um, I guess I just hope that everyone understands when I say metabolic conditions in childhood, uh, these are disorders of protein metabolism, disorders of fat metabolism, or disorders of sugar metabolism. And that would be that you can't either build them up properly or break them down properly. Mm. And as a result, you get dangerous uh, products that are made due to the uh, lack of an enzyme or the mm. dysfunction of an enzyme. And as a result, um, you either can't metabolize the glucose properly mm. um, or you can't metabolize the fats properly or the proteins properly. And as a result of that, you're unable to have an adequate stress response to when you become unwell. Mm. Or certain, when you start to be fed, um, those building blocks that you would normally have and build up with don't form properly and can form dangerous metabolites which can be mm. potentially lethal. So your, your inborn errors of metabolism? Inborn errors of metabolism, absolutely. Um, and we'll come on to them in terms of how you, how you assess them very quickly in the, for the emergency department. Um, so from that point of view we've considered infection, we've started to treat for it mm. uh, and we're starting to get a history of those other conditions mm. and we need to be using our clinical assessment uh, so in terms of cardiac, you know, is there a murmur? Mm. Are, are there femorals present? Are they missing? Mm. Um, always a difficult one with the femorals. If you've got a child who's cardiovascularly unstable, yeah. they may have poor, um, they may have a poor systemic flow. And so they're a bit might, shut down, so exactly. anyway, yeah. So their femorals might be harder to feel. Mm. And I think that's why you're always considering these conditions, but you're not necessarily um, not treating for the other ones so as I say you're always treating for sepsis you're thinking about cardiac and you're looking for those things a murmur uh, lack of femorals difference in pre and post ductal saturations yeah, I was going to say sats on all your limbs pressures yeah. on the limb yeah yeah, and they point to and they give you an idea of those things and if they're present then you might have to change your management to include managing cardiac conditions and obviously I think in another podcast Jamie we've, uh, we've spoken about managing uh, yeah newborns uh, as well as other children with cardiac conditions in the emergency department so I'd link you to that podcast to, to talk about what we might do and then thinking about neurology so is there is there any evidence that actually the child had abnormal movements or might have been at risk of a neurological insult in the newborn period so mm. as I said prolonged resuscitation at birth um, a period of hypoxia uh, maybe they had to have an emergency section for fetal bradycardias which might indicate that there was some stress at birth have parents noticed any unusual movements or previous periods of unresponsiveness um, and so thinking about those things and being aware that neonatal seizures can occur They're, they aren't very common but they are out there and um, in the newborn period thinking about have they had vitamin K because mm. if they haven't they'd be at risk uh, of, of hemorrhage so we give vitamin K to all newborns in the UK uh, to reduce the risk of uh, hemorrhage in the newborn period due to the reduced amount of uh, factors that they have. So when children are born, they have about half the levels of factor seven and eight of that of an adult, and they are at risk of uh, infantile hemorrhage. So finding out whether they've had VIT-K or not is important. Uh, and if there's any risk that they might have had a hemorrhage, you can feel the fontanelle to see if it's bulging, look for any areas of stiffness within the child. Uh, any abnormal movements, especially if they're focal, i.e. only one limb or one yeah. side of the body, that would be an indication to think about uh, getting uh, neuroimaging in those child. Yeah. I think if the child's this unwell, you first need to stabilise them, but mm. then they probably need a CT scan. So if they're flat and not very responsive, 
that would be difficult to assess or they're moving only three of their limbs yeah so again that might come into history have have yeah. you the parents or guardians noticed anything absolutely um you know that they've not moved one limb, limb or something like that yeah and i think you know it might be it might be a challenge at that period but it's something you have to have in your head to be thinking about um and then you need to think, you know, what can I do to test these things? And the quickest and easiest things you can normally do in the emergency department is a gas. Yeah. And the gas is helpful, give you a haemoglobin. So obviously, uh, in the newborn period, the haemoglobin is probably normal or high. So it can be behind 150 in the acute newborn period. In the first few days, it might be up to 170 or so as you're losing your fetal haemoglobin. So the blood gas machine will still register fetal haemoglobin. Yeah, it doesn't pick differentiate it all up. between. No, it'll pick it all up for you. Uh, and so that will give you an idea uh, of whether there's any evidence of that. If the haemoglobin is very high, it's worth looking at a hematocrit. So if the hematocrit is very high, so above, uh, depending on what your machine says, 0.7 uh, is usually what most machines say, then that's an indication that actually you've got very thick blood, okay, in raised viscosity. Uh, and so they might, that might be a sign that they're dehydrated, so they haven't been feeding very well. But it also raises the possibility if they've got increased viscosity of their blood of them having an occlusive event, mm. um, although they are reasonably rare in the newborn Through period. Like polycythemia. Exactly. Yeah. And then the blood gas also gives you some great information about metabolic conditions. So you hopefully you've taken the history mm. about consanguinity and those kind of uh, issues, looked at how feeding's been going, mm. um, and then um, you can have a look at the blood gas and so you get ideas from a lactate, from a sugar, uh, uh, from whether there's an acidosis or sometimes in some of these conditions an alkalosis which would point to point to there being a metabolic condition that you need to consider so I think if there's a lactate that's incredibly high out of keeping with perhaps the acidosis that the body's been trying to compensate shown that's been going on for a little bit longer so into double figures yeah. yeah then you've got to got to think about it but um, I guess the problem with all of these things is that you don't neonates don't always behave in the way that you'd expect so you no. don't often have that signal a very significant lactic acidosis mm. but it is there mm. and the one other investigation it's always worth sending if you're considering metabolic is an ammonia uh, I was going to say ammonia as a as a as a byproduct of yeah. abnormal protein exactly yeah. so you're looking for your urea cycle defects there your disorders of protein metabolism um, and I think from that point of view uh, in our lab it needs to be there in 20 minutes some places like to send it on ice you don't have to do that here but it's worth knowing what your local protocol is. Mm. Um, and obviously, if that's significantly raised, and so over 100 is probably what we're looking for, but in many of those conditions, it will be vastly higher than that. Yeah. Uh, then you automatically need to be thinking this is a urea cycle defect and sure. probably contacting some specialist care. So there will normally be a metabolic consultant on call mm. uh, for the region that you can speak to. Um, but in the first instance, it's probably worth getting a paediatric registrar to come and have a look at them. PICU. Absolutely. And so from a, uh, a metabolic condition, the, the emergency department cheat is to make sure you give them plenty of glucose. Okay. Okay. So if you, if you make sure that they're getting enough glucose, that's really important. So if you... If they're in the first even if it's normal on the gas even if it's normal on the gas so what you're trying to do is if they've got if they are attempting to metabolize their proteins or their fats because they're stressed mm. you're trying to switch them off as much as you can okay so by giving them a good supply of energy in glucose which is in the perfect form for them which they don't have to do anything with they just have to use then um, hopefully you reduce the impact of those other things so you're you're not undoing what's already been done but hopefully you're stopping the, the ongoing process so 
if you get this works for if you have any child who's got a known metabolic condition mm. in the first instance get 10% glucose running into them effectively and uh, if they've got a known condition they normally come in with a plan that you can just yeah. read and follow uh, but in this instance if you get 10% glucose running um, reasonably into them um, and that gives you some time it buys you some time to speak to the people you need to speak to so you can get some more things done so we've treated for septus mm. we've thought about cardiac and if we thought it is cardiac we can uh, watch our cardiac podcast uh, for what to do in the neonatal period uh, with regards to cardiac lesions uh, and just a heads up worth considering prostin mm. uh, in those children we thought about seizures mm. thought about imaging them to see if there's any evidence for that thought about metabolic conditions and within seizures and neurology uh, we do need to think about non-accidental injury um, and unfortunately it's not a very nice topic but it is one that you have to be aware of and you have to be considering is there any evidence is there any chance that this child has been harmed by someone um, bruising and bruising um, and you know specifically in the neonatal period we think about uh, the, the baby having been shaken mm. um, so you'd be looking for subconjunctival hemorrhages or petechiae um, you'd be looking for evidence of bruising or marks on the child specifically uh, around the chest wall but looking everywhere and making sure you do a thorough investigation including looking at the child's back mm. uh, and that's something that's always challenging because obviously you are trying to, to make them better um, and sometimes it can be forgotten but it's worth having a look there as well. A good exposure. And Absolutely. Those are the neonate, they're completely non-ambulatory so you, you wouldn't really expect bruising. They don't bruise so any non-ambulant child with bruising uh, should be investigated uh, as to the reason yeah. for it. And, and you mentioned um, neuroimaging so just to take yeah. a step back because I think everyone, oh god, CTing a, a, a baby's brain, you know, oh yeah. god, cancer risk and all that. What, what particulars are you looking for? What, what pushes you from that, going from risk to the benefit and going, I'm, I'm irradiating this baby's brain? To yeah. So I think if there's any evidence of a non-ambulant child who has evidence of, so, uh, of being harmed, mm. that's uh, it's a no-brainer. They need a CT scan of the head and they also need a skeletal survey to go with it. And that's just the national guidelines. Sure. Uh, so so that's, that's an easy one, I guess. If there is any evidence or suspicion of non-accidental injury, then they need a CT head. After that, uh, you're looking for, for reasons. Um, so any evidence of a bleed, so they haven't had vitamin K, um, that would increase your risk of a bleed. With no, when the diagnosis doesn't point elsewhere, a drop in their haemoglobin with no evidence of where it's, where it's gone. Uh, neurological signs, so uh, pupil signs are probably ones that we haven't spoken about, but uh, looking for them because you can see them in the image just as much as elsewhere, or any other signs. So have they had a seizure? Um, because at the end of the day you're thinking if they have evidence that they have had a neurological insult you need to know about it as soon as possible mm-hmm. neonates will cope better than, a, than adults or older children because their sutures aren't fused uh, their sutures aren't fused so they will have some degree of ability to expand mm. um, but that depends on the degree of expansion and the speed of expansion so if things yep. are expanding quickly the sutures won't have that much time to respond Mm. And all the same um, rules as in adults for raised intracranial pressure do apply. So, you know, have you got uh, bradycardia with our hypertension? Um, because if you do, then they are just as much signs of uh, raised ICP as they are in an adult. And they're probably more worrying because neonates should be able to cope with some mm. degree of raised ICP due to the fact that their sutures aren't fused. <laughs> I suppose you then look at, is, you know, 
is this a one-off sort of febrile seizure versus a a potential yeah, neurological so the, that, so the thing I'd say about febrile seizures is that uh, they happen in probably more around 18 months to 6 years so if they're happening younger than that you really need to be thinking about is this truly a febrile seizure because it doesn't quite fit with the right age certainly a neonate, neonates don't have febrile seizures you investigate them for why they have a temperature and a fit much more likely that they've got meningitis or an encephalitis and mm. so they should be fully investigated for that uh, and that probably that should not probably it should include a CT scan of their head mm. um, if they have had a fit in the neonatal period they at least need a CT scan of their head or they need some neuroimaging so if, if you work in a trust where it's incredibly easy to get an MRI scan great MRI their brain instead because it will give you more information mm. um, than a CT um, but most of us don't work in a in a trust where that's quite as easy. Although I would say our trust is excellent at getting children MRI'd. But um, you're like, well, it's the you know, is it ten o'clock on a morning Absolutely. on a weekday, or yeah. is it eleven? You know, is it yeah. eleven o'clock at night? And then it's the weekend. You know, and I think the thing to be said is at this age group, they're unlikely to stay still for twenty five thirty minutes in an MRI scanner. So yeah. you're going to need a general anaesthetic. Yeah, if you want to MRI them, so you need an anaesthetist, a free MRI scanner, and someone to report it. So it's not. And a nurse to sit with them. And at least a nurse to sit with yeah. them, maybe an, an anaesthetic a registrar to be with them. So um, it does require a lot more resources. But I think any child who's had a seizure, any neonate who's had a seizure, needs neuroimaging and needs to be considered Clear red flag. Clear red flag. So we've looked at cover for sepsis, just cover. cover. Yep. Think about cardiology. Yep. Think about neurology. Yep. Think about an, um, non-accidental injury. Um, neonates shouldn't have seizures. Yeah. Uh, and then we've um, thought about metabolism, glucose, think about ammonia, send that off nice yeah. and quick. And then, of course, phoning your friendly paediatrician, um, PICU, PICU and specialist. somebody on the specialist yeah. on the blood. You know, notice our limitations, but get other people involved. Absolutely. So hopefully within that, there is an approach. So every neonate who comes in, like you've just said, cover for sepsis, think about the other three possibilities, neurological, metabolic, cardiac. Uh, and if you do that uh, and call for help, um, then you're likely to manage them very effectively. Anything else you want to mention, Colin? Uh, no, I think that's it. Thanks, Jamie. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Colin. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was the Collapse Neonate podcast. Uh, you can find uh, this podcast and blog entry at uh, takeorally.com. Takeorally is also available on Facebook and Twitter. For more information about research and education opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, don't forget to check out NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.